Welcome, everybody. Pastor Eli James here. This is the Restoration Hour, sorry, Restoration Hour here at Your Folk Radio. This is July 30th, 2022. And uh, I've decided to do a continuation of this morning's show. We got a late start, 15 minutes late. And uh, I was unable to finish the references I was dealing with. And Namely, why the Jews don't believe in Jesus. And I dealt with one article which was very easy to dismiss because it was not done by uh, a really serious scholar. <laughs> that, that was, uh, that was uh, no difficulty whatsoever. However, when I got to this article, and I'll put this in the chat room, uh, both uh, articles are in the chat room from this morning. This one is from Or Somayach, Ask the Rabbi Why Jews Don't Believe in Jesus. So I'm going to copy this and put this in the chat room so people can see what's going on here. Okay, and it turns out that this particular article is actually quite scholarly and the rabbi makes some good arguments but typically because rabbinical Judaism is based on the Talmud and the Masoretic text and not on really serious exegesis they like to make things up I've been looking for counter-arguments against what the rabbi says here in this article. So I'm going to pick it up pretty much where I left off this morning. And the title of the article is Why Jews Don't Believe in Jesus. And I'm trying to find the author's name. Okay. Well, uh, I'm not finding the author's name. It's uh, But it's Ask the Rabbi. Ask the Rabbi. And there, it starts with a, a letter, name withheld, who wrote, Dear Rabbi, why don't Jews believe in Jesus? Doesn't it say in the Psalms, they pierced my hands and feet? Doesn't Isaiah say, behold, a virgin shall give birth? Okay, and scriptural references. And when I analyze this paragraph this morning 
I pretty much read it as is. He cites Psalm 22:17, but it turns out that was a typo. Uh, he should have put in Psalm 22:16, and so I was really confused when I read it from Esau that it didn't say what he what he says it said. So it's actually 22:16, but I'll read his paragraph and then I'll go into. Esword with the correct verse. And let me uh, get my ducks in a row here. And 20, Psalm 22, 16 is a very, very complicated verse, but it was all fulfilled. In fact, uh, actually, let me back up to verse 1 in Psalm 22, because this is one of the Psalms uh, where virtually every passage, every verse is a prophecy of the coming of the Messiah, of ordeals that he will go through in his lifetime. So a very important verse, very, very important chapter. Okay, so let's start. Scriptural references. In order to understand anything in the Torah, one must look at the original Hebrew. We totally agree with that. You will see that the Christians distorted, changed, and misinterpreted many of the Hebrew words in order to fit things into their beliefs. So he says, we know that the rabbis do that too. The two places that you mentioned are good examples. In Psalm 22:17, that's the verse he cites, but that's uh, he but it's not the correct verse. It's 22:16. So nevertheless, let me go through what he says here. Hikifuni ka'ari yade varagle, which means they bound me like a lion, my hands and my feet. The Christians translate this as they pierced my hands and feet. Nowhere in the entire Torah, prophets and writings do the words ka'ari or hikifuni mean anything remotely resembling pierce. Okay, so... Let's find out what the Christians say, because we have scholars on our side too. And this is from neverthirsty.org. And I will put this message into the chat room as well, because this is really good stuff. And so it's very rare that you actually get rabbis versus Christian scholars together in a room to debate scripture. So let's see what the Christian scholar here has to say. Again, from neverthirsty.org. What is the meaning of Psalm 22:16? That's the correct Psalm. It's a verse. It's not 17, it's 16. It was just a typo in the document from Ask the Rabbi. Bible question. Doesn't Psalm 22 say, quote, like a lion, they are at my hands and feet. So this is actually what the rabbi was saying, that how this verse should be translated. And, oh, <laughs> sorry, an ad popped up. Uh, donate to Never Thirsty. Let me get, see. oh, here, we're back. <laughs> All right, okay. Let me get back to the top of the article here. All right, Bible answer. Verse 16 of Psalm 22 reads as follows. 
for dogs have surrounded me. A band of evildoers has encompassed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. This is translated from the uh, NASB. And of course, it's Psalm 22:16. The author states, this is a difficult passage to translate. However, there are some important keys to unlocking the mystery. Dr. Gleason Archer makes the following observations about this verse. Quote, More significantly, we find that in the MT, that is the Masoretic text, of Psalm 22.17, the strange phrase like, Like the lion, my hands and my feet. And that's it's a ka'ariyade wiragle in a context that reads, Dogs have surrounded me. A band of evil men have encircled me, like the lion, my hands and my feet. Unquote. This really makes no sense, for lions do not surround the feet of their victims. Rather, they pounce on them and bite them through with their teeth. Furthermore, this spelling of the word lion, arj or ari rather, a r i, is rendered more doubtful by the fact that in verse thirteen. The word lion appears in the normal way, aryeh, A-R-Y-E-H. So the spelling of the two words is different. It is most likely that the author would have used, it is most unlikely, he says, that the author would have used two different spellings of the same word within three verses of each other. Far more likely is the reading supported by most of the Bible versions, that is, karu, they, the dogs or evildoers have pierced my hands and my feet. This involves merely reading the final letter Yod, Y-O-D-H, as a Wa, which would make it the past tense of a third-person plural verb. This is apparently what the Septuagint read for R for O R Y X A N Oryxan which would be a Greek word, they have bored through, reflects a karu, K-A-R-U, from the verb kur, pierce, dig through. So, at, at this point, I would say, number one, this is a comparison of the Septuagint rendering of these verses versus a Masoretic text rendering of these verses. And we know that the Jews, with their Masoretic text, have redacted and changed, they redacted, they removed verses, and they have changed many, many verses to suit themselves. And the conflict in the early years of Christendom between the rabbis and the early Christians was which is a more readable and or accurate version of the Old Testament. The Greek Septuagint, which was available from around 250 B.C., and which was used by the early Greek and Hebrew-speaking Christians, including the, the, the apostles, Paul and Yahshua himself. When they quoted the scriptures, they quoted the Septuagint, although the Hebrew, the undoctored version of the Hebrew scriptures was in existence, but apparently not accessible to these early Christians 
who were true Hebrews and true Israelites, many, many of them actually full-blooded Judahites, because the Jews, the Edomite Jews, controlled the temple. So they really couldn't get their hands on the actual Hebrew scriptures that were still there but not available to them. Nevertheless, they did have the Greek Septuagint, which was translated by 70 Judahite scribes who did their best to translate the Hebrew into the Greek at the behest of Ptolemy Philadelphus. We'll get into that a little bit later as we discuss the the origin of the Septuagint and comparisons between the Septuagint and the Masoretic text. So here we have to understand that there is, in many cases, a vast difference between the Masoretic text and the Septuagint. And we also find that, and I've uh, you know, t- taught on this before, that the Septuagint uh, is more in line with the Dead Sea Scrolls than the Masoretic text. And the Masoretic text was not made available until around 1000 AD. So the Septuagint was really the only extant text for Christian scholars in those days, except for scraps of Hebrew from here and there. So the Christian translation is dependent upon the Septuagint. The Jewish translation is dependent upon the doctored Masoretic text. So whenever you see a rabbi arguing from the Masoretic text, you have to be immediately suspicious. And here, this is a, a point in contention. And so let me repeat this argument, because this is a very sophisticated argument by the rabbi, which seems accurate on the surface, but which we find that from the Septuagint is contradicted. So let me repeat the rabbi's argument here. Again, this is ohr.edu. And let me just scroll back up. The title is Why Jews Don't Believe in Jesus. So the question is, in this case, that you know, what is the meaning of uh, Psalm 22, 16 and 17? And The question is, why don't Jews believe in Jesus? Doesn't it say in the Psalms, they pierced my hands and feet? Doesn't Isaiah say, behold, a virgin shall give birth? So right now we're focusing on the Psalm that says, a virgin shall conceive. And he says, in order to understand anything in the Torah, one must look at the original Hebrew. That is absolutely correct. And we in identity and good Bible exegesis demands that. However, knowing that the Masoretic text has been doctored by the Jews a great many times in order to delete references to the Messiah, because they don't believe their Messiah has come yet, you have to be suspicious any time a rabbi quotes the Masoretic text. So here we go. He says, you will see that the Christians distorted, changed, and misinterpreted many of the Hebrew words in order to fit things into their beliefs. So we have the counter argument that no, it was the Jews who distorted, changed, and misinterpreted many of the Hebrew words in order to fit things into their beliefs. Let's find out who's right. The two places that you mentioned are good examples. In Psalms twenty-two seventeen, the Hebrew states, 
Hikifuni ka'ari yade varagle, which means they bound me like a lion, my hands and my feet. The Christians translate this as they pierced my hands and feet. Nowhere in the entire Torah, says the rabbi, prophets and writings do the words ka'ari or hikifuni mean anything remotely resembling pierced. So let's go back to the Christian explanation from Never Thirsty. Again, because this is a very complex subject, I'm going through it again from both sides. Okay, Bible question. Doesn't Psalm 22 say, like a lion, they are at my hands and feet? Bible answer, verse 16 of Psalm 22 reads as follows. For dogs have surrounded me. A band of evildoers has encompassed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. And that's Psalm 22:16. This is a difficult passage to translate. However, there are some important keys to unlocking the mystery. Dr. Gleason Archer makes the following observations about the verse, and we quote, I quoted this already, but I'm quoting it again, both sides, so we get the point. More significantly, we find, this is the quotation now, more significantly, we find in the MT of Psalm 22:17, 16 in the English, so I guess there, that's where the discrepancy lies. I guess the Masoretic text has it Psalm 22:17, whereas our version has 22:16. But I'm going to read through the whole Psalm after this analysis to, to see what it says. The strange phrase, quote, like the lion, my hands and my feet, unquote, ka'ari yade we ragle. So he has a completely different set. There's some, two similar words, but two different words that he's quoting from. In a context that reads, quote, Dogs have surrounded me, a band of evil men have encircled me, like the lion, my hands and my feet. This really makes no sense, he says. For lions do not surround the feet of their victims. Rather, they pounce on them and bite them through with their teeth. Furthermore, this spelling of the word lion, ari, A-R-I, is rendered more doubtful by the fact that in verse 13, 14 verse in Masoretic text, the word lion appears in the normal way, aria, A-R-Y-E-H. Okay? So, who has made a change in the original Hebrew? The Jews or the Christians? This is a contention, one side accusing the other. He says, it is most unlikely that the author would have used two different spellings of the same word within three verses of each other. Far more likely is the reading supported by most of the Bible versions that's karu, they, the dogs or evildoers, have pierced my hands and my feet. This involves merely reading the final letter yod, y-o-d-h, as wa, which would make the past tense of a third person plural verb. This is apparently what the XX or the LXX, the Septuagint read, for or Oryxan, they have bored through, reflects a karu from the verb kor, pierce, dig through. The Vulgate conforms to this with fodorunt, they have dug through. The Syriac Peshitta has bazwa, 
which means they have pierced, penetrated. So we have the Jews on the one hand saying it cannot mean pierced, that we have the Septuagint, the many Christian translations, the Syriac, and others, Vulgate, all having pierced. So the weight, if, if it's just the weight of evidence, we see that the Christian argument is better than the Jewish argument. And we always have to mistrust the Jewish argument. <laughs> That's the bottom line. We always have to mistrust the Jewish argument because we know that their Masoretic text is flawed, totally flawed. So let's get back to this. That was a reference from, let me scroll down and get the reference real quick. That is Gleason L. Archer, Encyclopedia of Bible Difficulties, Zondervan Publishing House, 1982. Dr. Archer alerts us to the fact that most likely the word that appears in Psalm 22:16 does not mean lion, but means pierced for several reasons. The most significant reasons are, one, that lion does not make sense in the context of the passage, and two, there may be an error in the manuscript. No, there, well, in the Masoretic text, there may be an error, yes, maybe a deliberate a mistranslation. But what if Gleason Archer is wrong and the Hebrew language had two different words for lion? Since the LXX, or Septuagint, was written at the latest by 150 B.C., most likely much earlier, yeah, I contend it's more like 224 B.C., it would have been closer to the time that the psalm was written and consequently have a better understanding of the meaning of the word. Here is a translation of Psalm 2216 from the Septuagint, the Greek translation. Now remember, the Septuagint was translated by 70 Judahite scribes, real Judahites, not Edomite Pharisees, at the behest of Ptolemy Philadelphus. For many dogs have encompassed me. The assembly of the wicked doers has beset me round. They pierced my hands and my feet. Unquote. The Greek word used for pierced does not mean lion. The Greek word is oruxan. It means to dig, excavate, or digging a hole. This indicates that the translators of the Hebrew Bible into the Septuagint, a Greek translation, understood that the hands and feet would be pierced. They did not understand that the Hebrew word to mean lion. Conclusion. The prophecy was fulfilled when Jesus' hands and feet were nailed to the cross. And when they had come to the place called Calvary, they crucified him, Luke 23:33. Later, one of Jesus' disciples wanted to see the nail holes in Jesus' hands and feet. He was not sure that the individual they were seeing was Jesus. Quote, So the other disciples were saying to him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the imprint of the nails and put my finger into the place of the nails and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. John twenty twenty five. No rabbi will ever believe. After eight days, his disciples were again inside and Thomas with them. Jesus came, the doors having been shut and stood in their midst and said, Peace be with you. 
Then he said to Thomas, Reach here with your finger and see my hands, and reach here your hand and put it into my side, and do not be unbelieving, but believing. Thomas answered and said to him, My Lord and my God. John twenty twenty six through 28. When he saw the wounds, he knew that Jesus was God. Okay, and the other references here are Sir Lancelot Brenton, the, the Septuagint with Apocrypha. That is the most common translation of the Septuagint. And Danker and Bauer, Greek lexicon of the New Testament University of Chicago Press. Okay, so here we have a very excellent response to the claim by the rabbi that the Christians doctored the text. Now, again, I cannot stress enough that the Masoretic text is a Jewish redaction of the Hebrew Scriptures. It has been tampered with by the rabbis, and unfortunately, the MT is the basis of the, the King James Old Testament. That's why the KJV has so many flaws. It's based on a Jewish redaction of the Hebrew Scriptures. So let's go back to the article. Why don't the Jews believe in Jesus? Okay, uh, sorry, I forgot. I was going to read through the whole of Psalm 22. Let's do that now. Verse 1. To the chief musician upon Ijaleth, Shahar or Ayeleth, because there was no J in uh, the Hebrew or Greek, Ayeleth would be the correct pronunciation, Shahar, a psalm of David. My God, my God, and both of these are Elohim, which means, oh, actually, Alei, or El, but in fact, it's El. It's a good thing I looked it up. It's actually El, which means strength or mighty, the Almighty. My Almighty God, my Almighty God, why hast thou forsaken me? Doesn't this sound like what Jesus said? Why have you, that's what he said on the cross, folks. In his moment of weakness, and you can understand why he would be weak from all the suffering. Eli, Eli, Saba, I think Saba, something like that. Is the exact, it's actually an Aramaic statement made by Yahshua on the cross. Take this cup from me. Why have thou forsaken me? And he may have said this in the garden also. So these are, these are not a direct quotation from the New Testament, but we can see that the New Testament quotations of Yahshua as he was getting ready to die or as he was on the cross reflect this verse 1 already. My God, my God, in Aramaic is Eli, Eli. Oh, I just can't remember the Aramaic phrase, but Eli, Eli, here we have El, El. Why hast thou forsaken me? Why art thou so far from helping me and from the words of my roaring? Yeah, in his moment of weakness, he actually asked Yahweh the Father to relieve him of this burden. And of course, that couldn't be done. The prophecies had to be fulfilled. Uh, th this was probably the only moment of weakness 
recorded in the scriptures by Yahshua. Verse 2, O my God, I cry in the daytime, but thou hearest not, and in the night season, and am not silent. Verse 3, but thou art holy, O thou that inhabitest the praises of Israel. Our fathers trusted in thee, they trusted, and thou didst deliver them. They cried unto thee. Hold on, my. This Esword has a really bad problem of jumping, jumping from one book to another. It just jumped to uh, John. Psalms, let me go back to Psalm 22. And here we go again. Our fathers trusted in thee. They trusted and thou, thou didst deliver them. They cried unto thee and were delivered. They trusted in thee and were not confounded. But I am a worm. Now, of course, this is a psalm of David. I am a worm. This is ultimate uh, humility on his part. And no man, no, no ish. I am a worm, not a male or a male of the species. A reproach of men. That's from Adam. I am reproached by the Adamites and despised of the people. What is people here? Am, okay. Am, my people. Ami, my people. Psalm 22, 7. All they that see me laugh me to scorn. They shoot out the lip. They shake the head. Okay, this is what was happening to Yahshua uh, even before his way to the cross, but definitely on his way to the cross and once upon the cross, they that see me laugh me to scorn. They shoot out the lip. They, you know, uh, I guess it could even be spit, cleave or burst through, you know, uh, emit, literally a gape. They gape at me. They shake the head saying, he trusted on Yahweh that he would deliver him. Let him deliver him, seeing he delighted in him. These are the taunts that Yahshua had to bear while he was being persecuted, folks. Psalm 22 is a premonition of the passion. Verse 9. But thou art he that took me out of the womb, Thou didst make me hope when I was upon my mother's breasts. I was cast upon thee from the womb. Thou art my God. Again, I think this is L. Yes, L, my almighty God. From my mother's belly, thou art, thou art the almighty. It's probably the best translation here. Be not far from me, for trouble is near for there is none to help. Yes, this is when Jesus was all alone and nobody could help him. But he knew that even the Father could not help him in this situation. He had to go through with this because all of history up to that point in time depended on him being sacrificed as the Lamb of God for Israel. There's no way this event could not happen. It had to happen. That is why when Peter said to him, no, I'm not going to let this happen to you. I'm not going to let them kill you. He said, get thee from me, Satan. I have to do this. 
You can't talk me out of it. And of course, Peter did not yet understand. None of the apostles still understood what had happened, okay? They didn't realize that he was the Lamb of God and he himself had to be sacrificed for the sins of Israel. And then it says, Many bulls have compassed me. Strong bulls of Bashan have beset me round. They gaped upon me with their mouths as a ravening and roaring lion. Now let's see, what's the word for lion here? It is Ari. But it gives two. It gives A-R-I-Y, and it also gives A-R-Y-E-T-H. So it could be either one. So again, this addresses the confusion of the verse coming up. So here, it's Ari, H738. They spell it two different ways here, A-R-I-Y and A-R-Y-E-H. Let's compare it to the next, the, uh, in, the, in the next couple of verses here. This is verse 13. Verse 14, I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted in the midst of my bowels. So, I mean, this is, this is a psalm of excruciating pain and suffering, both figurative and literal. Verse 15, my strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue cleaveth to my jaws, and thou hast brought me to, into the dust of death. This is all about the crucifixion, folks. Verse 16, For dogs have compassed me, Caleb, from an unused root meaning to yelp or else to attack a dog. Hence, by euphemism, a male prostitute. Dog is the primary definition. For dogs have compassed me. The assembly of the wicked, we know by this is meant the Pharisees, have enclosed on me. (laughs) They pierced my hands and my feet. Again, this is Ari, Ari, why? In the sense of violence, a lion, young lion, pierced from the margin. Okay, so we we went through the piercing, and all the other versions of the scriptures have this as pierced. Only the Jewish version has it as lion. Okay, and a Christian scholar I quoted gave all the reasons why it's translated as pierced. Let's continue, verse 17. I may tell all my bones, they look and stare upon me. They part my garments among them and cast lots upon my vesture. This is obviously a scene from the crucifixion. But be not thou far from me, O Yahweh, O my strength. Again, this is from Eeluth, feminine, power by implication, protection, strength. Haste thee to help me. Deliver my soul from the sword, my darling from the power of the dog. (laughs) Okay. Again, this is Caleb, meaning dog. Save me from the lion's mouth. Now here, apparently, it is, again, it gives Ari, 
Aryeh, it gives them both as lion and pierce. The strong concordance gives both. Of course, if a lion bites you with his mouth, with his teeth, he pierces you. So the the word piercing is not out even in the official Hebrew or the Masoretic Hebrew. It is not an out-of-the-question translation. For thou hast heard me from the horns of the unicorns. And of course, the unicorn is the reem, which is a gigantic bull, an ox, a gigantic ox. 22. I will declare thy name unto my brethren. I will declare your name, Yahweh, unto my brethren, who are his brethren, of course, the Israelites. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise thee, which is what he did while he walked the earth. Ye that fear Yahweh, praise him. All ye, the seed of Jacob, glorify him and fear him. All ye, the seed of Israel, for he hath not despised nor abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, neither hath he hid his face from him. But when he cried unto him, he heard, My praise shall be of thee in the great congregation. I will pay my vows before them that fear him. And etc. Let me go back there one more time. Again, this crazy, this crazy uh, Esort jumps all over the place because the uh, columns are so narrow you can accidentally switch to another book within a a, one thirty-second of an inch. All right. My praise shall be of thee in great congregation. I will pay my vows before them that fear him. The meek shall eat and be satisfied. Okay. Uh, have you ever in your whole life met a meek or a humble Jew? They feign humility. They're very good at that. And we, but we know who and what they are and what they're really about because we understand the scriptures. So, and of course, Yahshua said, the meek shall inherit the earth. And we know the Jews will not inherit the earth. They will be gathered and burned as the parable of the wheat and tares clearly states. Again, verse 26, the meek shall eat and be satisfied they shall praise Yahweh that seek him. Your heart shall live forever. All the ends of the world. What is this? Eretz. Okay, sometimes it's translated earth. Earth, sometimes it's translated world. Here it's translated world. All the ends of the world shall remember and turn unto Yahweh. And all the kindreds of the nations. And that's Goyim all the goy, shall worship before thee. All the nations shall worship before thee. Every knee shall bow, for the kingdom is Yahweh's, and he is the governor among the nations. All they that be fat upon earth shall eat and worship. All they that go down to the dust shall bow before him. Again, (laughs) every knee shall bow before him. That's in the New Testament too. And none can keep alive his own soul. Because why? He is the, through him, 
according to First John, chapter one, the universe was created through the agency of the Son, the Father and the Son together. A seed shall serve him. What seed might that be? Of course, that's Zerah. Can it possibly be the Jews? I don't think so. It shall be accounted to Adonai for a generation. Now, what do I have for generation here? Door. Properly a revolution of time or age or generation. And it shall be, it shall be accounted to uh, Adonai for a generation. Okay. Well, of course, generation can also mean seed or posterity. And most of the Bible scholars, theologians, do not really appreciate the meaning of posterity and the contra contrapositioning of generation for a period of time versus generation of posterity. I would say that typically when both those words are used, they're being used of Israel as the people who will be forever because it says, of course, the scriptures say all 12 tribes will live forever. We're coming up to a major catastrophe before us, but all 12 tribes, members of all 12 tribes, and specifically 12,000 members of all 12 tribes will survive this and become the government of the kingdom. And one final verse in Psalm 22, verse 31, they shall come and shall declare his righteousness unto a people that shall be born that he hath done this, okay? So, the people that shall be born. Well, I mean, if you want to talk about being born again, our people were born again at Pentecost 33 AD. Okay, Yalad here is to bear young, causatively to beget, medically to act as a midwife, and of course, the apostles... <laughs> acted as the midwife for the circumcision of the heart in the beginning of the book of Acts. Okay, that's what happened there, folks. All right, so we can see that Psalm 22 is all about the Messiah, his passion and his mission on the earth. Because the similarities between these verses and his actual passion are too great to be ignored. Okay, so I see in the chat room here, it looks like something really interesting has come up. Uh, okay, Adolf puts in apparently uh, a major discovery. Sixth century Christian rock carvings of ancient Irish Agam script found in West Virginia. Oh, very good. And Agam is, is, of course, a version of Paleo-Hebrew. Uh, I'm going to digress toward this because this is a very important discovery. Cumberland Academy, quote, In 1981, archaeologist Robert L. Pyle of Morgantown, West Virginia, began exploring the mountains of the southern part of the state, studying petroglyphs, markings on stone, that at first glance resembled archaic runes, and were different from traditional ancient American rock carvings. 
His archaeological research focused on petroglyph sites in Wyoming County, West Virginia, and Manchester, Kentucky. Research indicated the markings were an ancient alphabet known as Agam, found in the British Isles, especially Ireland, Scotland, and Wales. And, of course, this is where the original settlements of Zara Judah were, Ireland, Scotland, and Wales. The petroglyphs in West Virginia and Kentucky exhibit what is known in Europe as a stem-type agam. The markings were considered in connection with the tradition of St. Brendan's voyages to this continent in the 6th century. Good stuff. Well, just uh, one more quick paragraph here. These are not the only Old Norse or Latin carved petroglyphs on the North American continent of the CE time period or the, the AD time period. But this petroglyph is heralded by some as the Rosetta Stone of Old Norse and Latin as the same message is written in both symbologies. Fantastic. Again, archaeology always proves the Bible to be true. Always prove. Thank you for that, Alf. That's very good stuff. Okay, let's return to the article by the rabbi. And we're going to now consider Isaiah 7.14. And the rabbi says, In Isaiah 7.14, the Hebrew states, quote, Hinei ha'alma hara veoledet ben. Behold, the young woman, ha, the Alma, young woman, is pregnant and shall give birth to a son. The Christians translate this as, behold, a virgin shall give birth. They have made two mistakes here, probably deliberate. <laughs> Not like Jews don't make deliberate mistakes. In the one verse, they mistranslate ha as a instead of the. Okay, that may simply have been an error, but it doesn't change the fact. In fact, the word the is even better because we're talking about the, a a specific young woman. Not any young woman, a specific young woman, and it can only mean Mary. That's the only person it can mean. So actually, this so-called mistake is in our favor. Then they mistranslate Alma, as virgin, when in fact the Hebrew word for virgin is betula. Aside from the fact that if you read the context of that prediction, you will see clearly that it is predicting an event that was supposed to happen and be seen by King Ahaz, who lived 700 years before Jesus. That is the explanation given by the wise sage (laughs) rabbi, Now let's go to a Christian scholar. Agape Bible prophecy, Bible study. Okay, I'm going to copy this. Again, this is very important stuff because this is how biblical exegesis should be done when there is a conflict between Christian teaching and Jewish teaching. And this is a kind of a long, but I want you folks to look, look at this. So here is the Agape site. Okay, let's get back to it. In defense 
of the Old Testament prophecy of the virgin birth. Again, it's Agape Bible study. And all this took place to fulfill what Yahweh had said through the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall name him Emmanuel, which means God is with us. And that's Matthew 12, I'm sorry, Matthew 1, verses 22 and 23, the NAB. And the author states, In the biblical passage above, St. Matthew is quoting from the Old Testament book of the prophet Isaiah. It is a quote from the sign Isaiah gave to King Ahaz in Isaiah 7.14. Okay, so we can see that the rabbi is saying, let me go back and say, read what the rabbi says. He says that this is, that is clearly predicting an event that was supposed to happen and be seen by King Ahaz, who lived 700 years before Jesus. But this is not what the verse says. It was a sign given in the presence of King Ahaz. There was no indication that it was to be fulfilled in the lifetime of King Ahaz. Let's see how the Christian author here uh, handles this. Again, it is a quote from the sign Isaiah gave to King Ahaz in Isaiah 7.14. The Greek Septuagint translation in use during Jesus' lifetime translates the Hebrew words as ha-alma into the Greek as the virgin. So I was correct. The virgin is actually a better translation than a virgin. Using the Greek word parthenos. Parthenos. Parthenos means virgin. Again, the Septuagint was translated by 70 Judahite scribes. And they were alive well, well before the Jewish rabbis were. And you have, would ha- have to believe that this translation is more authentic than any Jewish version. Okay? Since the Christian era, Jewish scholars have maintained that the Hebrew word Alma does not mean virgin, but instead refers to a young woman recently married. Okay. I'm not aware that, uh, I don't think this rabbi argues that, he just argues that it means a young woman. It doesn't say anything about recently married. So this may be a, a conflation or a misperception by the author, but, but never let, that's what he says. A young woman recently married, but I think our, our problem is whether or not it means virgin or young woman. So let's continue. The Septuagint translation of this Hebrew word as virgin, however, is an important witness to an early Jewish interpretation of this word as virgin, a translation accepted by St. Matthew I think when he says Jewish, I think he means Israelite here. (laughs) An early Judahite interpretation of this word as virgin. A translation accepted by St. Matthew and applied to the virgin birth of the Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth. According to Christian tradition, St. Matthew was a Levite who, because of his temple education, understood how to both read and write Hebrew. In using the prophecy from Isaiah, he clearly understood that the interpretation of the prophetic words ha-alma, which correctly is the virgin, 
in Isaiah 7.14 to refer to the sign of the virgin and the miraculous birth of the virgin's son. Since he links the prophetic utterance of Mary of Nazareth and Jesus' virgin birth in Matthew 1.23. In the book Queen Mother, A Biblical Theology of Mary's Queenship, author of Edward Shree, S-R-I, notes on page 140 that the Hebrew word Alma is used nine times in the Old Testament. However, he does not list those passages. The references to Alma, I found, are the following. I'm going to, these are hyperlinks here in blue, so I'm going to just click on them to read them. Okay, here we go. Genesis 24, 43. Hopefully the hyperlink works. All right, here it is. While I stand here at the spring, if I say to a young woman who comes out to draw water, please give me a little water from your jug. Okay, so this is clearly young woman. And, oh, oh, sorry. <laughs> I think I may have lost, I think I may have lost the original document when I when I clicked on the hyperlink. So, so I'm going to have to go into the chat room and recover the document. Okay. There it is. Okay. Wow. Okay. It's a good thing I put it in the chat room. Next hyperlink is Exodus 2, 8, and 3. I won't make that mistake again. Pharaoh's daughter answered her, go. So the young woman went and called the child's own mother. All right. Let me get back to the original article. So, again, it's a young woman. Isaiah seven fourteen. Therefore, Yahweh himself will give you a sign. The young woman, it says, pregnant and about to bear a son, shall name him Emmanuel. Okay, oh, this is the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops. So apparently this is a Catholic translation. So let's go through them all. Song of Songs, 1-3. Oops, can't find this page. Song of Songs 6-8, I have a feeling we'll get the same problem. Yes, we did. 404 error, can't find the page. Psalms 68-25, which reads, Your procession comes into view, O God. Your procession into the holy place, my God and King. Uh, I don't see the word Alma in there. And one more. Proverbs 30 might have been the wrong link. Hard to say. The way of an eagle in the sky, the way of a serpent upon a rock, the way of a ship on the high seas, the way of a man with a woman. That's verse 19. So this is from the... Okay, see, so these are the verses listed by the author. And uh, the author is not stated, but it's the Agape Bible Study. Okay, let's continue. In each case, the Hebrew word Alma explicitly means virgin or implies it, he says. In each case, Alma always refers to an unmarried woman of good reputation. Okay, so I wasn't looking for a woman with unmarried woman of good reputation. Okay, so he's arguing against the idea that it means an unmarried woman. Okay, 
let's continue. Well, of course, either Alma, virgin, or young maiden is going to be an unmarried woman because, as we know, the Israelite women were very much cloistered and protected until they were betrothed to somebody. Of course, Mary's situation was a little bit different, right? And Joseph had to uh, save her reputation by marrying her. Nevertheless, this is the, the argument presented by the author. Let's continue. He says, it is never used to refer to a married woman in Scripture. Okay, fine. In Genesis twenty-four forty-three, the word Alma is used for Rebekah, Isaac's future bride. Okay, so he's arguing against the possibility that somebody would mean a married woman by Alma. Okay, so let me just get through this until he gets into what we're really looking for is whether it can possibly... He says the word Alma explicitly means virgin or a, a woman who has not yet been married. Okay, so I wasn't looking for that in those verses, so maybe he's correct. So let's just follow his argument. So in Genesis twenty-four forty-three, the word Alma is used for Rebekah. Isaac's future bride, and by Israelite tradition, she had to be a virgin. Am I right? Or am I right? The passage also records that she was a young girl and that no man had touched her. 24.16 In Exodus 2.8, Alma describes the infant Moses' older sister, Miriam. In Psalm 68.25, Alma describes maidens being courted, while in Proverbs 30.19, Alma is used to suggest the mystery of marriage and procreation, a virgin giving herself to a man. In Song of Songs 1.3 and 6.8, the Hebrew word Alma is applied to virgins of the royal court as opposed to women who are sexually experienced. Okay? So he's arguing from the context that these women are virgins. So, as you all know, in real estate, the important selling point is location, location, location. And in scriptural diagnosis or exegesis, the important point is context, context, context. I would say so far, this Christian author has really defended the uh, interpretation or translation of virgin in an excellent manner. Okay, and uh, at this point, I'm going to take a really quick break. This is really good stuff, folks. Really good. So stick around, and we got there's more to come. This this is biblical exegesis, like you will hear it nowhere else in the world except here on Eurofolk Radio. And let's pick a song here. Okay, and I need to take a quick break. And let's do second coming. How about how Israel turned away?
Once you were my wife, but went astray, and so patiently asked you back. You promised to obey, but my joy didn't last. Caught you in the arms of Bale's romance. I tried to forgive you. Told you that you had another chance, but when I held my arms wide open, you turned away. take that break as many of you know I've been having this issue with radiation it causes my uh, uh, nostrils to start uh, getting leaky <laughs> right and uh, I've had to spend most of the day in front of my various computers doing research and stuff and had a conference with Paul English regarding Eurofolk radio and uh, other things so I've been on the computer a lot and uh, I can feel the effects uh, this, my only computer that doesn't radiate a lot is this laptop I'm using right now. So I'm back in business, and let's get back to this site, okay? So he continues. 
I think he really did an excellent job of explaining these ver- these seven different verses why they actually mean an unmarried woman, which in the Hebrew context, especially Old Testament Israel, had to be a virgin. Okay, if she wasn't a virgin, the the scripture would say so. Let's continue. Rabbinic Judaism maintains that the word Bethula is the Hebrew word for virgin. It is true that this word is also used for a girl or young woman. And in the passage about the young Rebecca, both Bethula and Alma are used. See Genesis twenty-four sixteen, Bethula twenty-four forty-three, Alma. However, while Bethula may refer to a young girl who is a virgin, it is also used in the Old Testament scriptures to refer to a young married or a young sexually active woman, as it is in Joel 1.8. Bethula is found at least 50 times in Scripture. Most translations in English word, or sorry, in English render Joel 1.8 as mourn as a virgin, Bethula bride in sackcloth mourns for the bridegroom of her youth, unquote. Accepting the revised Jewish rendering of the word Bethula and adding the word bride, which does not appear in the Hebrew text. Okay? So that's the Jewish rendering. They added a word bride. But this translation does not make sense in the context of the passage. Bridegrooms have brides, but brides are no longer virgins. The young girl will mourn for her bridegroom. But if it is a virgin who mourns, she is mourning for her betrothed and not her bridegroom. If this passage was referring to a betrothed young woman and not a young woman whose marriage was already consummated, the Hebrew would have been Bethula, Merasha, Book of Isaiah, Edward Young, Volume 1, page 288. Also, in Aramaic translations of Scripture, the Aramaic equivalent of Bethula refers to a married woman. Isaiah did not use the word Bethula because he did not want to confuse his readers. Isaiah's prophetic statement clearly intends us to understand that the virgin with child is the force of the sign connected to the house of David, Isaiah 7.13. The use of the plural you in verse 14 indicates that the sign is not just for King Ahaz, thus contradicting the assertion of the rabbi. The use of the words ha'alma, the virgin and not a virgin, are deliberate. This virgin is a woman chosen by God to bear a son who will be assigned to the house of David and all of Judah. Again, as I said in in reading the rabbi's criticism, the word the is even more powerful because it points to the woman, the virgin, Mary, and not any old woman. Continuing, this is an outstanding exposition of of this verse. The prophetic sign ends with the prophecy that the child born from the virgin will be called Emmanuel, God with us. The promise Jesus made to his disciples in Matthew 28:20b, and look, I am with you always, yes, to the end of time. With the end of the giving of the prophetic sign to King Ahaz, Isaiah then turned to his own little son, who he has brought with him as God commanded him, go out with your son, Sher Yashub, and meet Ahaz. Isaiah 7.3. He then answers King Ahaz of Judah's fears concerning invasion of the combined forces of King Rezan of Aram and King Pekah of Israel by revealing Yahweh's message of encouragement, Isaiah 7.1-9, 1-9. 
indicating his son Isaiah tells the king that in a short period of time, before his little son is old enough to discern between good and evil, Judah's enemies will no longer be a threat. In defense of the prophecy of Isaiah 7.14, being applied by St. Matthew to Mary and Jesus in Matthew 1.23, the Protestant leader Martin Luther pledged to pay a hundred pieces of gold to the scholar who could show any passage where Alma referred to a married woman in the Old Testament. So far, to my knowledge, no one has collected on the pledge. Book of Isaiah, Edward Young, Volume 1, page 287, note 35. For more information on the use of Bethula and Alma, see the Book of Isaiah by Edward Young, Volume 1, Edermans Publishing, 1996, pages 286 to 288. Okay, the author is Michael Hunt. Okay, uh, copyright 2009. So, very good exegesis of the, worst, of the words, answering very significantly the, the uh, exceptions made by the rabbi. So we see that this type of exegesis, which does not occur on a regular basis between Christians and Jews, is very much important to our understanding of scriptures, especially when the Jews contest our reading of the works. This is very important stuff, folks. So let's continue uh, with the With the original document here, again, I'm going to have to go into the chat room to recover because I'm flipping around from one, from one, uh, from one document to another, and it looks like uh, I've lost the original Jewish article. Okay, so give me a, please be patient, let me see if I can find this because I want to continue with that article. Uh, rats. Let me go back into the chat room and see if I can find it. And if I can't find it, I'll just go to a, uh, another document about the Septuagint. Okay. Uh, let's see here. Or. Dot, I think this is it. Or.eudu. Yes, here it is. With all the different websites I was flipping around. I lost the original document here, but this is it. Again, or Somayach, why Jews don't believe in Jesus. And so we've covered the two main verses of Psalm 22, 16 and 17 and Isaiah 7, 14. Then he goes into genealogy. And let's see what the rabbi has to say about genealogy. He asserts, that Jesus was not descended from the house of David. Obviously, the continuation of his line of descent extends from the Old Testament into the New Testament. And his line of descent is given both through Abraham and from Adam in, uh, in Matthew and Luke. So it's very obvious. If the scriptures are to be believed then he is a descendant of David. Now, it doesn't matter whether it's descended through the father or the mother. He was descended from Mary in the flesh. So, But he asserts that Jesus was not descended from the house of David. And he says, 
according to Jewish law, tribal identification comes from the father's side, being Jewish, from the mother's side. Okay, well, according to his own logic, if if we equate Jewishness with being an Israelite, Mary was therefore an Israelite, clearly by descent given in the Bible, then Jesus is an Israelite, period. Okay? And she was of the house of David, which makes him of a descendant of the house of David. So this is simply a flat-out lie. And, of course, we know when the Jews assert that their descent is through the mother, that is unscriptural. All descent in, in Scripture is through the father. Okay, It's always reckoned through the father. And their wives become members of the tribe they marry into. It's just that simple. There's no other way of reckoning these things. Okay? All right, so tribal identification comes from the father's side. That's correct. And But being Jewish, he says, comes, no. Being an Israelite comes from both. You have to be a, an Adamite to be the bride of an Israelite man. And your offspring are given their tribal affiliation through the father, period. Then he says, according to Matthew 1, Joseph was descended from David, although there are many contradictions between his genealogy there and that listed in Luke. However, according to the same text, Joseph did not have sexual relations with Mary. Therefore, Jesus was not related to Joseph and not a descendant of King David. Well, well, that's all a lie because Mary's genealogy is given in one gospel and Joseph's is given in the other. In both cases, they're descended from David. So he's simply denying the New Testament. Let him do it. Three answers to this problem are given in classic Christian sources. One, the genealogy is that of Mary. He says this is inadequate since if he is claimed to be Jewish Messiah, and according to Jewish tradition, he must be descended on his father's side. Well, but that's their tradition. That's their tradition. And the fact is, there were many cases of the royal house of David where there was no male heir. We find that to be the case in the case of Zedekiah's daughters because Zedekiah's sons were all killed by Nebuchadnezzar, leaving only Tiatefi and Scada. Well, guess what? The line of David was preserved through Tiatefi and Scada. Period. Okay? So he's wrong. It was preserved through the mother, lacking uh, lacking a father in this case, a male progenitor. We have to rely on the female progenitor. They're still of the house of David. B, uh, so he says, Mary's genealogy is irrelevant. That's his argument. B, he was adopted by Joseph. According to Jewish law, adoption does not change the status of a child. Well, that's not true. In uh, the Israeli state, the, the Supreme Court of the Israeli state can proclaim uh, someone not born of a Jewish woman to be a Jew <laughs> by adoption or simply by c- conversion, okay? So if an Israelite is adopted by a Kohen, and of course the Jews are not descended from, from uh, 
Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob anyway, or from Moses and Aaron. They're not descended from that, those people. So you know, these arguments are all presum- presumptuous. You have to assume that these Jews are, in fact, Israelites, which they never are. So he says, if an Israelite is adopted by a Kohen, a descendant of Aaron, the high priest, the child does not become a Kohen. Like, well, that's true, because it has to be a, a product of the father. Likewise, if a descendant of David adopts someone who is not, he does not become of the tribe of Judah and a descendant of David. That's exactly right. You cannot be adopted into a tribe of Israel. Okay, but since since Mary was in fact a descendant of Judah and David, Jesus is a Judahite and the rightful heir to the throne. See, he says, it doesn't matter. He was a spiritual inheritor of King David. The Bible doesn't say anything of the sort. If it doesn't matter, why do Christian scriptures spend time establishing his genealogical pedigree? And if he is claimed to be uh, the Jew, he's not claimed to be not by us. He's claimed to be the Judahite Messiah. Then according to Jewish tradition, it doesn't matter. Well, Jewish tradition doesn't apply because the Talmud and all of their documents don't adhere to Scripture. They don't believe Moses. As Jesus said, if ye had believed Moses, you would believe me. Jewish tradition is what is irrelevant. Three messianic predictions. The main predictions concerning the Messiah, he says, are that he will bring peace to the world, gather the Jewish people from their exile to the land of Israel, and and rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. Oh no, there is no prophecy that says he would rebuild the temple. There is no such prophecy. That is a flat-out lie. That's Talmudic. That's not biblical, folks. After Jesus' appearance, in fact, uh, the scriptures are very clear that we are the temple, the temple made without hands. Again, you see, these Jewish teachings, which they claim to be scriptural, are not scriptural. They're Talmudic. But they lie to the people by saying, uh, hedging their language. Sometimes they say Torah, which is, in fact, the five books of Moses. And sometimes they say Talmud, which is the non-scriptural traditions of the elders, the Pharisees. And then they will use both words to apply to either, which is surely dissimulation. Torah is the five books of Moses. Talmud is rabbinical interpretations and distortions of the Torah and the rest of the Bible and uh, many other things. So he continues, after Jesus' appearance, the temple was destroyed. The Jews were exiled all over the world, and we have not even had one day of peace in the past 2,000 years. Whose fault is that? Because you invade other people's lands, and then they throw you out. Many of the wars, in fact, were started and fought by the followers of Jesus. No, they were never started by us. They were started by you Jews with your money-lending practices. Then he says, these events are enough to show that he was not... No, that's all ridiculous. Every single sentence in this paragraph was a lie. Then he says, the main Christian responses to these objections are, one, the second coming. First of all, we find this to be a contrived answer. Well, because this is proof that they don't accept Jesus. 
since there is no mention of a second coming in the Jewish Bible, there is no such thing as a Jewish Bible. There is a Talmud, and there is the Hebrew Scriptures, the true Bible. And it's not the Masoretic text, as we just explained. It is, in fact, the Septuagint. Second, why couldn't G-D accomplish his goals the first time around? Well, because he had to die for Israel's sins first. How could he die for Israel's sins and stick around? He could have come back right afterwards. But no, we, true Israel, had to spend the next 2,000 years learning what the heck is going on here. And most of our brethren haven't figured it out yet. Most importantly, he says, the second coming idea is just an attempt at answering an obvious question, but it certainly does not constitute proof of messianic claims. Uh, Again, more proof that the Jews do not accept Jesus as the Messiah. So anyway, this objection is easily answered. He had to die first. And it's irrelevant as how long it took him to come back. Then he says, B... There is peace when his followers' hearts, that is wonderful for them. Well, actually, there's another prophecy. In fact, Moses states that we will be circumcised in the heart. Paul says circumcision of the foreskin is irrelevant compared to the circumcision of the heart. And the prophecy in Jeremiah 31.31 states that the two tribes, the two houses, will be reunited. The two sticks prophecy in Ezekiel confirms the same thing, that all 12 tribes will be in existence forever. Whereas the Jews assert that only their tribe, whatever that might be, but it's certainly not Judah, certainly not Benjamin, certainly not any of the others, they assert that they are Israel, all of Israel, and there's no other tribes besides them. He continues, most importantly, the second coming idea is just an attempt at answering an obvious question, but it certainly does not constitute proof of messianic claims. Well, again, that's the difference of opinion. But we follow the scriptures. We follow the scriptures. And there's plenty of scriptures in the Old Testament that talk about a second coming. I don't have them at hand. I'll look for those uh, for a future installment of this type of argument. B, there is peace within his followers' hearts. Yes, it's always the Jews have, who have upset our apple cart because they are the sons of Cain, and they're the ones, the Edomite Jews, the Pharisees, who put him to death. Of this, there's absolutely no doubt. Okay? So he says, okay, he says, that is wonderful for them. The the Christians should have peace in their hearts. But we Jews won't let them have peace. But does that help the victims of the Inquisition? Well, the reason we had an Inquisition, because the Jews, as crypto-Jews, having pretended to convert to Christianity, had infiltrated every level of society in Spain and impoverished the people of Spain. It was the people of Spain who demanded that the Jews be kicked out. And then he says the Crusades. Well, the Crusades were an attempt by the Israelites to recapture their territory. It never belonged to the Jews who were Edomites. Uh, The Hundred Years' War, the First World War, the Second World War. Well, the Jews created all those wars by, by financing one side or the other. Even Martin Luther, who was initially supported 
by by the Jews, turned against them when he realized they were just supporting him to take advantage of him. Okay? And it's really obvious that the First World War and the Second World War were financed by the Rothschilds and other Jews. So you can't hang that on our necks, Rabbi. In each of the events that I mentioned most, if not all the combatants, the violent oppressors and torturers were people who claimed to be followers of Jesus. That is an absolute lie. An absolute lie. All these wars have been started by Jews and their moneylenders. And then he says, And is peace in the heart of a fulfillment of swords into plowshares? Well, when he returns, he's going to destroy Edom. Okay? All right. Well, I don't know if it's worth it uh, going through the rest of this. Uh, maybe I'll... Oh, yeah, he taxed the Trinity. Oh, well, here, let me just go Messianic qualifications. Messiah is a prophet, a scholar, and a pious king. Have the Jews ever had a pious king? Have the Jews ever had any king at all? Of course, they claim King David for themselves and the whole lineage, but we know that the lineage was transplanted from Judea into Europe through Tiatefi and Scotta, and also through Anna, Mary's cousin, when she married King Lear, who was of Zarah Again, that's the healing of the breach that Paul talks about, the breach between the two houses. So if they had done any research into the migrations of the 12 tribes, which they deny have ever having occurred, they will go there, obviously, because it disproves their contentions. Okay, so that was, quote, uh, the kingdom of God is at hand. Well, it's, it's coming. That doesn't mean it's going to happen overnight. That was 2,000 years ago. Has the kingdom of God come? Has the Jewish Messiah come? Will the Jewish Messiah ever come? Do you call the Holocaust, Paul Pot, and Stalin a, in a world in which the kingdom of God has come? The Holocaust is a fiction. Paul Pot and Stalin are products of the Jewish mind and Jewish financiers. You see how this rabbi is relying on dozens of Jewish lies to make his argument? He says, Jesus was not a great scholar. One of the requirements of the Messiah, as Jesus as a little boy, astounded the entire court with his knowledge of Scripture. Again, you see, the rabbi is a liar. Was Jesus a king? Yes, he was in line to be king of Israel. Not king of the Jews, king of Israel. Next, he was not anointed as king by a prophet, as was the rule in Jewish kings. Well, no, uh, prophets and others were anointed by various different people. And how does he know? Well, wasn't uh, John the Baptist the prophet? There were many prophets in the New Testament, including his, uh, I guess, uh, Elizabeth's husband, Zechariah. He was a prophet as well. He says he was not anointed as king by a prophet, as was the rule in Jewish kings. Well, not, not Israel kings, Jewish kings maybe. He was not appointed by any judicial body as a leader, and he did not rule over the Jewish people, nor was he accepted by them. Yeah, because they're not Israelites. He was arrested, tortured, and killed by the Romans. No, he was not. He was arrested, tortured, and killed by the Jews. 
not by the Romans. He had no army or government. Well, because his army is yet to come, folks. The answer to my question is obvious. No. Was Jesus Messiah by Jewish reckoning? Well, this brings up a very interesting point, folks. Was Jesus killed by the Romans or by the Jews? Let's go to John chapter 19. First of all, let me just quote John 7, 1, which states that Jesus would not walk in Jewry because the Jews sought to kill him. It doesn't say the Romans sought to kill him. And we know from many other scriptures that the Pharisees were always the ones who took offense at his criticisms of them. And they plotted to kill him. It doesn't say anywhere that the Romans plotted to kill him. The entire four Gospels all state that the Pharisees were the ones who were conniving. They had the false trial against him, breaking all the rules of how a trial should be conducted. By the way, the high priest at that time was Caiaphas, who was appointed by the Romans. So if you want to talk about not being appointed by an Israelite or a Judahite, yet the Pharisees accepted Caiaphas as high priest. You see the dissimulation here by these Jews? You really have to know their arguments to argue against them. So let's go to John and chapter 19. Okay, and so let's take a really quick look in the chat room. I have to scroll back down. Okay, so here we go. John 19. Jesus delivered to be crucified. Verse 1. Then Pilate, therefore, took Jesus and scourged him. And the soldiers platted a crown. And now it doesn't say if these were Roman soldiers or soldiers of the Sanhedrin. The soldiers platted a crown of thorns and put it on his head. And they put on him a purple robe. Purple, huh? Very interesting. Isn't that the color that Hillary Clinton and all the Democrats wore in protest of Donald Trump's election? And said, Hail, King of the Jews. Now, of course, this was in mockery because Jesus did not come to be king of the Judeans. He came to be king of Israel. And they smote him with their hands. Was it the Romans that smote him with their hands? Or was it the, the crowd that was whipped up into a frenzy by Caiaphas and the Pharisees? And certainly, Pilate, as we see here from th this description, Pilate was trying to save him from Caiaphas and the Pharisees. Verse 4, Pilate therefore went forth again and saith unto them, Behold, I bring him forth to you, that ye may know that I find no fault in him. Let me read that again. That ye may know that I find no fault in him. It's you. 
It's you Jews, you scribes and Pharisees, and you, the Sanhedrin, and that Hiramob that you hired and paid money to demonstrate against him, as they still do today. You are the guys who are accusing him. I find no fault in him. Verse 5. Then came Jesus forth, wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. There's that purple robe again. And Pilate saith unto them, Behold the man. When the chief priests, therefore, and the officers saw him, they cried out, saying, Crucify him, crucify him. Now these could not be officers of the Romans because the Romans could care less whether he lived or died. These are underlings of the Sanhedrin. They're the ones who are shouting, Crucify him, crucify him. Pilate saith unto them, Take ye him and crucify him, for I find no fault in him. Second time he said, I find no fault in him. Verse 7, The Jews answered, and this would be properly Judeans, but we know that there were two types of Judeans living in the land of Judah at that time. There's the true full-blooded Judahites, descended from Judah, and the Edomites that had been converting to what can only be called Judaism now because there was no such thing as Judaism in the Old Testament. When John Hyrcanus circumcised the Edomites in 121 B.C., these Edomites became citizens of Judea, but there is no way that mere circumcision can turn an Edomite into a Judahite. So we had a multicultural state in which these Edomites began to infiltrate positions of authority, as Jews always do. But this is the first recorded instance of Jews or Edomites infiltrating our, our government, our institutions, our people, and calling themselves us. This is the beginning of the great impersonation, the hundred years before the time that Yahshua walked the earth. And so, the Jews, that is the Judeans, and of course this was a mixed crowd because the, the Sanhedrin had whipped, whipped the crowd into a frenzy and there were even Judahites who joined in the, in the fray, as is totally verified by the book of Acts, where Peter addresses them in chapter 2 saying, you people, you, he addresses them as men of Israel. Men of Israel. He doesn't call them Jews. He calls them men of Israel. You have participated in the crucifixion of your Messiah. And they were cut to the heart. If these Israelites were not, in fact, Judahites, and Israelites, they wouldn't care. If they were Edomites, they could care less. They would not have been cut to the heart because they would, they would have been part of the, of the plan to destroy Jesus. What Peter told them was, hey, you have been tricked, you have been used by the, the Sanhedrin to crucify your own Messiah, and that's why they were cut to the heart. Anyway, let's get back to verse 7. And the Judeans answered him, We have a law, and by our law, 
our law. They didn't say by the law of Moses. <laughs> Remember, Jesus said, if you had believed Moses, you would believe me. But you have your own tradition, the tradition of the elders, which is the Talmud, folks. That's their tradition. And by our law, he ought to die because he made himself the son of God. Well, of course, he was. But the, these, this court, so-called, of Caiaphas and the elders and the Sanhedrin and the scribes and Pharisees was totally illegal because they violated every law in Scripture of how a man, that is right, is supposed to be tried. They, they, they held the trial at night. He was only, they only presented false witnesses called by Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin. That was a farce, folks. The trial of Jesus by... Was he tried by Pilate? No, he was tried by Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin. John 19.8 When Pilate therefore heard that saying, he was the more afraid. Because Pilate was doing everything in his power to save him. Everything in his power to save him. Verse 9 and went, and went again into the judgment call, and saith unto Yahshua, Whence art thou? But Yahshua gave him no answer. Verse 10, Then saith Pilate unto him, Speakest thou not unto me? Knowest thou not that I have power to crucify thee, and have power to release thee? And he did have that power. He absolutely did have that power. He was not lying about that. Okay, my my sword jumped again, so let me scroll back to John 19. And getting back to the verse where we left off. Okay, I'm almost there. Sorry about the delay. Okay, so his answer. Let me repeat, stop, uh, pick up where I left off. Then saith Pilate unto him, Speakest thou not unto me? Knowest thou not that I have power to crucify thee and have power to release thee? He had no intention of killing Jesus. Absolutely none. And yet that rabbi we just read said, Oh, the Romans killed Christ, not our Jewish Sanhedrin. Verse 11, Jesus answered, quote, Thou couldst have no power at all against me, except it were given thee from above. Again, he's simply repeating that this act has to happen, and there's nothing you can do about it. Pilate, there's nothing you can do about it. Now listen, here's the crucial statement. Therefore, he that delivered me unto thee hath the greater sin. The entire history of Judea under Roman occupation was that the Romans first established Antipater, the Edomite, and Herod, the Edomite, and Herod's brother, Phasaelus, and several other Edomites over the people of Judah. 
So it was the Romans who gave these Edomites authority over Judah. Nevertheless, it was not the Romans who wanted to kill Christ. So the Romans bear the fault of having put these Edomites over at house of Judah in the first place. But Rome had no interest in crucifying him because what? The main interest of the Romans was to collect tribute. And the rabbis were partners in collecting this tribute because they knew that if they started an insurrection against Rome, Rome would lose its funding. They didn't want to have another war. All the Romans were interested in was collecting tribute. So as a matter of fact, these Herodians, these Herodians, these Edomite Jews were in league with Rome in the collecting of tribute. But the Romans had no interest in crucifying Christ. It was only the Pharisees who wanted that. So let me repeat this statement again. Therefore, he that delivered me unto thee hath the greater sin. So he's saying, okay, yeah, you Romans are guilty, but the one who delivered me to you hath an even greater sin, and that man was Caiaphas, the ruler of the Sanhedrin, who was appointed by the Romans. And he was an Edomite, not a Judahite. Verse 12, And from thenceforward Pilate sought to release him, But the Judeans cried out, saying, If thou let this man go, thou art not Caesar's friend. They're threatening him with a cutting off of the funds. If they have an insurrection, and then Pilate would be blamed for the insurrection. Whosoever maketh himself a king speaketh against Caesar. Oh, now whose side are they on now? Are they on Yahweh's side? Or are they on Rome's side? Again, as I just said, these Edomites were in league with the Romans. In fact, they were put into power by the Romans. Verse 13. When Pilate therefore heard that saying, he brought Jesus forth and sat down in the judgment seat in a place that is called the pavement, but in the Hebrew, Gabbatha. And it was the preparation of the Passover and about the sixth hour And he saith unto the Judeans, Behold your king. Pilate fully understood that this was a threat. That if he did not agree to crucify Christ, that, or let them crucify Christ, because he didn't do the deed. He was between a rock and a hard place. Because if he didn't do it, the Jews would send letters and emissaries to Tiberius Caesar saying, hey, he's responsible for all this chaos because he refused to do what we wanted. There's no other possible interpretation of these verses, folks. No other possible interpretation except the Jewish lie that the Romans killed Christ. So, then Pilate therefore took Jesus and scourged him. Oh, wait a minute. Uh, My... Esau jumps around. I have to get back to the correct place. 
So, all right, let me find the correct verse again. It just jumped to verse 1, unaccountably jumped to verse 1. All right, here we go. All right, so the crucifixion. Then, oh, hold on, hold on. I can't miss this. The very, very important verse is still here. Gabbatha. And it was the preparation of the Passover. And he saith unto the Judeans, Behold your king. Verse 15. But they cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate saith unto them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. Why? Because they were Edomites, not Judahites. And they had no interest in preserving the kingdom of Judah. They only had an interest in preserving their own illegitimate priesthood. That's the only interest they had. The one and only interest they had. Now we get to the crucifixion, verse 16. Then delivered he him therefore unto them to be crucified, and they took Jesus and led him away. And he, bearing his cross, went forth into a place called the place of the skull, which is called in Hebrew, Golgotha. Now remember, now Jesus said in verse, uh, now I forget which verse it was, he that delivered me to you hath the greater sin. He that delivered me to you hath the greater sin. And so Pilate represented Rome, Caiaphas represented the Edomite Jews. And, bearing, and he, bearing his cross, went forth into a place called the place of the skull, which is called in the Hebrew Golgotha, where they crucified him, and two other with him on either side, one, and Jesus in the midst. And Pilate wrote a little a title and put it on the cross. And the writing was, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. That Jesus Nazarenus Rex Judeorum. That's King of the Judeans. I remind you that Jesus did not come to be King of the Judeans. He came to be King of Israel. So this statement by Pilate was an error. This title then read many of the Jews, or the Judeans, for the place where he was crucified was nigh to the city, and it was written in Hebrew and Greek and Latin. Verse 21, Then said the chief priests of the Jews to Pilate, Write it not, write not the king of the Judeans, but that he said, I am king of the Judeans. Well, he never said that. He came as king of Israel not king of the Jews, not king of the Judeans. See how important the meanings of these words are? Verse 22, Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. I'm tired of this mess. Leave me alone. What I have written, I have written. Haven't you had enough? Then the soldiers, when they had crucified Jesus, took his garments and made four parts to every soldier on a part. Remember, we quoted that verse earlier, the prophecy in Psalm 22. 
that these soldiers, he would be compassed about by dogs. The dogs, in fact, are the Edomites. And that his garment would be not, not torn asunder, and lots would be cast for his garments. Okay? This is all prophesied, folks. There's no other person in human history that fulfilled any of these prophecies. Old Testament prophecies. Okay? but And also his coat. Now the coat was without seam, woven from the top throughout. They said, therefore, among themselves, let us not rend it, but cast lots for it, whose it shall be, that the scripture might be fulfilled, which saith, they parted my raiment among them. And for the for my vesture, they did cast lots. So some of those soldiers were obviously Judahites being employed by the Sanhedrin. These things, therefore, the soldiers did. Verse 25. Now there stood by the cross of Jesus his mother and his mother's sister Mary, the wife of Cleophas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciples standing by whom he loved, he saith unto his mother, Woman, behold thy son. Then saith he to the disciple, Behold thy mother. And from that hour the disciple took her unto his own home. That's John. He's saying, John, I want you to adopt my mother as your own. Now it's quite possible that John was of Mary's womb also because Mary had children the normal human way, (laughs) right? And John may have been literally his brother, but it could could also be in terms of a, how how should I put it, a father-in-law or Jesus uh, would be Jesus' father-in-law. Whoever Mary married after Joseph, because she did have children the normal way, that could be relevant in this verse as well. Verse 27, Then saith he to the disciple, Behold thy mother. And from that hour the disciple took her unto his own. This is John speaking of himself. Now the death of Jesus. After this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the scripture might be fulfilled saith, I thirst. Now there was set a vessel full of vinegar, and they filled a sponge with vinegar and put upon it hyssop, instead of kind of herb. Let's see, what is this herb? Hyssop is, I forgot, uh, it's not the modern word. I guess it can be called hyssop, but there's another word for it in modern English. And put it to his mouth. When Jesus therefore had received the vinegar, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up the ghost. We only have about nine minutes left. We can uh, read all of this. Verse 31. The Judeans, therefore, because it was the preparation that the bodies should not remain upon the cross on the Sabbath day, for that the Sabbath day was a high day, besought Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. Then came the soldiers and they brake the legs of the first and of the other which was crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was dead already, they brake not his legs. This also 
fulfilled the prophecy. But one of the soldiers with a spear pierced his side, and forthwith came there out blood and water. And he saw that it bare record, and his record is true, and he knoweth that he saith true, and he, he might believe. Okay, an interesting thing here, it's not published publicly by the medical profession. In fact, most doctors don't even know about it, that your body has what's called the interstitial fluid. The interstitial fluid looks more like water than blood, and your blood through the capillaries dumps its nutrients into the interstitial fluid, and it's the interstitial fluid that delivers it to your organs and muscles so and so forth. And then your interstitial fluid takes the you know, the carbon dioxide and the byproducts of oxidation and gives it to the veins, and the veins return it to the lungs where it's oxidized as carbon, I mean, ex- expelled as carbon dioxide. And then your liver and other organs get rid of the of the oxidants of the oxidants. Okay, so this interstitial fluid is most obviously, in my opinion, what is being described here as water. And it's like your lymphatic system, but it's actually separate from the lymphatic system because the interstitial fluid delivers these nutrients or these uh, you know these oxidants to the lymphatic system just as the blood delivers the nutrients to the interstitial fluid. So we actually have three systems. We have the blood, we have the interstitial fluid, and we have the lymphatic system. Let's continue. That he that saw it bear record, and his record is true, and he knoweth that he saith true, that ye might believe. Okay, so it's true. I don't care what the rabbi says. (laughs) It's true. Verse 36 For these things were done that the scripture should be fulfilled. A bone of him shall not be broken. Verse 37. And again, another scripture saith, they shall look on him whom they have pierced. Which was, of course, Isaiah 7.14. So we see that there's a great dispute, a great discrepancy between the Jews and the Christians as to the proper interpretation of all Scripture, not just the New Testament, all Scripture. John 19.38, And after this, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, also being his uncle, but secretly for fear of the Judeans, or fear of the Jews, because we know here the Jews means the Edomite Jews, besought Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him leave. He came therefore and took the body of Jesus. And there came also Nicodemus, which at the first came to Jesus by night and brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about a hundred pound weight. Then took, or that might have been, a hundred pound is an awful lot of weight. So I don't know if this is a mistranslation or maybe it's talking about the value of this uh, mixture. Then took they the body of Jesus and wound it in linen clothes with the spices as the manner of the Judeans is to bury. Now, of course, since the Edomites have to mimic what the Judahites have been doing, they would pick up 
these rituals as they picked up circumcision. The fact is that John Hyrcanus first circumcised an Edomite around the year 121 B.C., and incorporated them into the nation, but that does not make them Judahites. They still remain Edomites forever until they are destroyed as per Obadiah. Verse 41. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new sepulcher where it was never a person buried a man yet laid. There laid they Jesus, therefore because of the Judeans, preparation day for the sepulcher was nigh at hand. All right, so Joseph jo- uh, Joseph gave Jesus his own tomb that had built for him and gave it to Jesus so that he could be buried. So it's obvious, folks, that when we compare the Holy Scriptures from the identity point of view, with the Jewish point of view, the Jews lose every time. They lose every time because they are the ones who have distorted the scriptures with their Masoretic redaction. And we lie on the Septuagint for Old Testament and, of course, the Dead Sea Scrolls because the Dead Sea Scrolls preserved the, the, the scroll of Isaiah intact. It's the only one that was intact. And from what I understand, the uh, Dead Sea Scrolls conform with the Septuagint, not with the Masoretic text. Okay? So that's the story, folks. In every single case, the rabbi has been proven to be either wrong or a liar, and usually just a plain old liar. So thanks for listening. These, these scriptures and this dispute has to be carefully analyzed, and I think you know, we always come out on top against the Jews. <laughs> no doubt about that. Thanks for listening. Praise Yahweh. Pass the ammunition, folks. We'll see you tomorrow. Take care. Yahweh bless. attention Israel I've got something on my mind why must marriage be so hard my people wander following the blind why can't you
jealous heart Such a jealous heart Tearing me apart Is this jealous heart I've got a jealous heart Such a jealous heart you got to do your part To soothe this jealous heart